0: Talking with Pastor Brendan, I think we're going to uh, wrap up the Help and Hope series uh, next Sunday evening, uh, but uh, tonight, um, along that vein, uh, how can I change? How can I change? Uh, we all have areas in our lives that need to change. Vic has an explosive temper. In the past, it's cost him relationships with his friends and family members. He has attended anger management classes, but nothing has changed. Angela has had a hard life. Everyone who knows her story feels sorry for her. But Angela's bitterness is driving everyone away, even those that love her. And She feels powerless to overcome the past. Jake has been addicted to pornography since his mid-teens. Sometimes he goes for days, maybe even weeks without giving in to lust, but inevitably he returns to the sinful practice. Nothing seems to help him to break the habit. Monica started drinking when her children grew up and left home. Over the years, she's been through various programs, but has never been able to kick the habit. Her husband won't give her any cash, she doesn't have a credit card, but recently she was so desperate that she pawned some jewellery, which had been in the family for generations, just to get money to indulge her habit. Bill and Casey have been married for over 10 years, God's blessed them with two children. Bill and Casey don't fight, but there's no intimacy in their relationship. They recognise that they aren't being wise and consistent in raising their children. They're both tired of the the mediocrity of their family life, but they feel powerless to make things better. The question that all these people are asking is, how can I change? And I think we'd all agree that change is necessary and desirable, but it needs to be pointed out that not just any change will do. Jim Berg highlights this point by giving a couple of examples. A spoiled teen may stop sulking. That's a desirable change. But only because his parents have acquiesced and given him him the car that he wanted. Desperate, sorry, just depressed wife is now her old cheerful self again. That's a desirable change. But only because her husband granted her the, the, the divorce that she wanted college student is now getting better grades that's a desirable change but only because she's found a boyfriend whose affection has lifted her spirits and now she feels like studying again an embittered factory worker has stopped complaining about the foreman that's a desirable change but only because he's been transferred to another location clearly there is such a thing as Non-biblical change or unbiblical change. Change for the wrong reason. Or change that doesn't really address the underlying issues. Biblical change is called sanctification. It's the process by which the Christian grows and matures and becomes increasingly, increasingly like the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe there's some areas in your life that are in need of change. Maybe you've tried to change and failed many times. Maybe you've just got to the point where you give up trying. You don't think there's any hope of ever changing. Well, tonight I want to share with you seven points from the Bible to show how we can change. Number one, change is always possible for believers in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the Christian life is a life of lifelong, it's a lifelong process of change. One day we were saved and God justified us, he saved us from the penalty of sin. One day very soon he's going to glorify us and deliver us from the presence of sin, but every day in between, it is God's plan to sanctify us, that is to deliver us from the Power of sin and make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a point in time when God took us off the road that leads to hell and put us on the road that leads to heaven, and He walks with us along that road. He's daily working on us to conform us to the image of His Son. And having begun that work, God will not cease that work until the work is complete. Philippians one six, Paul encourages his readers. To be confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that God performs this work of sanctification incrementally. He says we're changed from one degree of glory to another. We're changed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, even as, as by the Spirit of God. In other words, no Christian is so entrenched in sin, so dominated by the past, so hindered by genetics or anything else, that he cannot be changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Corinthians are a perfect example of that. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 to 11, Paul says to them, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. If anyone needed changing, it was those guys. And it says that God was the one who justified them, the God who justified them. It says also he he sanctified them. He changed them from what they were by his spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is at work, there is liberty, there's freedom. To the Roman Christians, Paul wrote, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have Obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, being made free from sin. You became the servants of righteousness. Freed from the bondage to sin, liberated to serve righteousness. People who are in bondage to sinful behavior can be set free to live righteously. That is God's plan. That is God's purpose, that is God's promise for all of his children. Secondly, the heart is the place where real, long-lasting change takes place. One of the things you quickly discover is that when most people seek change, they seldom have their own heart in view. People want to change their circumstances or they want to change the other person. But when the focus is put... Only on the outward circumstance, the solutions are seldom more than temporary and superficial. It is interesting and I think highly significant that the first time the heart of man is mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says that God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth and that every imagination and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man's wicked behaviour, which in that verse is described as great, and his evil deeds, which are described as being continual, God tells us they are the outworking, they were the outworking of man's heart. And the verdict doesn't change a bit when you work your way through the Bible. It only is reinforced. Jeremiah 7, uh, 9 verse 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it? who can know the wickedness of which our hearts are capable the book of proverbs provides this insight and counsel it says keep thy heart with all diligence for, for out of it are the issues of life the heart is a found foundation from which springs forth all of our thoughts and all of our words and all of our actions spring forth out of our Heart. The heart is our inner life. It is the, that there the mind, the thoughts, the motives, the desires, all come forth. The heart is where a person thinks and considers and analyzes and evaluates and feels and chooses and decides. It's the mission control center of our lives. The heart is always active. It causes, it directs, it shapes our behavior. Your heart causes you to do what you do. When you lust, you lust out of your heart. When you're angry, it comes out of your heart. When you steal, that theft with the hand first took place in your heart. It comes out of the heart. When you swear, when, when we lie, the words out of our mouth come out of our heart. When we're bitter, when we disobey, when we won't submit, when we're addicted to alcohol or addicted to pornography, those are heart issues. It doesn't have anything to do so much with a physical drink or a physical computer per se. They're heart issues. Mark chapter 7 verse 21 to 23, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within. And defile the man. In Luke 6, Jesus gives this this very helpful illustration about a tree. He says, A good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit. Neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. But an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. In other words, the bad fruit of our lives is just the product of the bad root of our heart. The bad behavior, those things that need changing, all come out of a bad heart. Behavior is not to be considered in isolation from the heart. But our temptation is to focus on the behaviour. It's hard for us to accept that our words and our behaviours are not caused by what's outside of us, but what's inside of us. But the scriptures are clear, that every wrong that you and I do flows out of our thoughts and desires of our hearts. James chapter 4, verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you, came them... Come they not hence, even of your own lusts, that is, the the inner desires of our own hearts. In other words, our biggest problems are not around us, they are within us. As Jim Berg says, we do what we do because we are what we are. In order to change what we do, we must cooperate with God to change what we are. Therefore, lasting change must also always go through the pathway of the heart. Thirdly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of biblical change. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that everyone who turns from sin and trusts Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. Brethren, this is good news. As a matter of fact, it's beyond good news. It's truly amazing. When someone believes in the gospel, that moment instantaneously things happen. We go from darkness to light. We go from death to life. We go from being condemned to being justified. We go from being a child of Satan to becoming a child of God. Spiritually destitute, now we become spiritually rich. The believer in Jesus Christ immediately becomes a new person, whole new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is the most amazing thing. No wonder the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that gets saved. However, many, many Christians think that the gospel is important only at the beginning of the Christian life. They understand it merely as the means by which our sins are forgiven when we come to faith in Christ, but they fail to see the importance of the gospel for our ongoing growth as Christians. Many Many Christians believe that while we are justified, that is declared righteous by God through the gospel of grace, they think that we are then sanctified, made holy, primarily by law. This is not the pattern that we see in the scriptures. Paul admonished the Galatians, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are ye perfected by the flesh, that is, your your own efforts to keep the law? Christians need the gospel every day. Paul preached the gospel at Corinth. People heard it and got saved, but then he wrote to them. He wrote to them to help them with their sanctification, and he told them the gospel again. 2 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye also have received, and wherein ye stand, by which you also saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain, they were saved. Nothing was going to change that. But they, they, they were in danger of just sort of forgetting all of that. It was so important. It saved you and you stand in it, Paul says, he reminded them. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, chapter 1, verse 15. He told them he earnestly desired to come and see them and preach the gospel unto them. And then he writes 16 chapters, giving them the most magni- magnificent explanation of the gospel contained anywhere in the scriptures. In it, he told how Christ's death, burial, and resurrection works for our justification. That's the first five chapters. But also how Christ's death, burial, and resurrection provides for our sanctification. That's chapters 6, 7, and 8. And at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul is so taken up with the love of God as he's displayed it in the gospel, that it affects his heart so deeply that he cannot but affect his behaviour It results in Christ-like behavior in him wanting to lay down his life for others in order that they might be saved. That's what happens at the beginning of chapter 9. And then the next three chapters, he tells how the gospel of Jesus Christ affects the salvation of Israel. And at the end of those chapters, his heart is so full of the wisdom of God as it's displayed in the gospel. His whole whole heart is so impacted by that and transformed by that. The, The only logical thing to do and he encourages us to do it as well. It's to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And then he gives this stack of practical you know, duties that we must perform. And we're very happy to do that. He's very happy to do that, seeing that his heart has been so impacted and transformed by the gospel. In trying to motivate the, Christ, the Corinthian Christians to give generously, Paul appealed to the gospel. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That's the gospel, that's the incarnation, that's the gospel. And he did this so that you might be rich. And then in contemplation of the gospel, he explains at the end of that paragraph, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. That's a a response of worship from a heart that's been overwhelmed by the goodness of God expressed in the gospel. And that leads to godly actions and godly behaviour. The gospel, when rightly understood, affects our hearts deeply. It changes our values. We'll happily renounce our entitlements and forsake our idols and give God his due in actions towards others. Yes, the gospel brings us spiritual birth, and by it we're justified in the eyes of God, but it also orients us. Orient, orients us. It guides us. It empowers us. It dominates. It should dominate all of our Christian life thereafter. But I think when many of us, when trying to change, we, we rush to the commands of Scripture, what we should do, for God, before having an adequate emphasis upon what God has done for us in the gospel. Yeah, that's not the pattern that we see in the scriptures. The typical pattern that we see in the New Testament epistles is to begin with gospel truth before making a practical application concerning a Christian duty. We have the gospel truth of Romans 1 to 11, and then the practical application of all of that, the outworking of that in chapters 12 to 16. We have the gospel truth contained in Ephesians 1 to 3, then the practical application of practical duties in chapters 4 to 6. We have the gospel truths of Colossians chapters 1 and 2, then the practical application as to our Christian duty in chapters 3 and 4. The practical commands, the imperatives of Scripture, are based upon the preceding indicative statements the truth stated concerning God's wonderful gospel of grace when we're struggling to forgive others scripture takes us back to the gospel ephesians 4:32 be ye kind one to another tenderhearted forgiving one another why even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you that's the gospel when our behaviour towards others is unloving, scripture takes us back to the gospel. Walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us and has given himself for us as a sacrifice unto God for a sweet-smelling saviour. That's the gospel. When a, when a husband finds he doesn't have the capacity to love his ungodly wife, scripture takes him back to the gospel. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for it. And he should be th- thinking, thinking in how, how great is the love of Christ. How amazing is the love of Christ. How wonderful is the love of Christ. How overwhelming is the love of Christ. And that, that does something in his heart. It does something in his heart. It, it, it humbles him before God and, and lifts his heart up in praise to God. And at a heart of worship, there is this response. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, tells us to mortify the, the deeds of the, the flesh, the sinful deeds of the flesh, to, to change. It's telling us to stop doing sinful things. But that's only possible because of the preceding verses, which tell us about our union with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. That's the gospel. And since we're united with Christ and risen with him, we set our affection on things above. And when our affection is set on Christ and all that he's done for us in and through the gospel, something happens within us and we are enabled to mortify the sinful behavior of our flesh. This is the message of Romans 5 and 6. Our salvation means that we are united together with Christ. We identify with him in his death, burial and his resurrection. And thereby, because of the gospel, we also are raised to live a new life and are enabled to live godly, Christ-like life. Change begins with the gospel. It's the goodness of God revealed in the gospel that leads us to repentance. It's the grace of God revealed in the gospel that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. It is through the gospel that we see the wonderful love of God and we are taught of God to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9. Change begins and change continues with the gospel. Number four, the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God is the primary tool for change. There are several tools that God will use to bring about change in our lives. Uh, God will use trials very often. He'll bring a circumstance in our life uh, which um, He uses in His providence to teach us things that we get taught no other way. God uses trials. Prayer also is, would be an important component. However, the primary tool for change is the word of God applied by the spirit of God. In John chapter 17, we see Jesus praying for his disciples. He's praying for you and me. This is what he prays for you and me. John 17:17 Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through your word. The word of God is the sanctifying agent the key passage for this is second timothy 3 verses 15 to 7 which we read before let's read it again paul says to timothy from a child you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in christ jesus all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I want to draw your attention to two things it says here about the scripture. First of all, the scriptures are able, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Scriptures are able. The Greek word is dunamos. From where we get the word dynamite, they are powerful. The scripture is no mere history book. It does things to people. The scriptures have the power. They have the ability to make us wise unto salvation. They also have the ability and the power to make us mature, it says there in verse 17, to sanctify us. They can fully form us into what God would have us to be and fully equip us to do what God would have us to do. It says the scriptures are able to bring about its God-intended purpose. Let's, take, just take, let's just take as an example the Gospel of John, Scripture, the Gospel of John. God's purpose in inspiring John to write his gospel, it's clearly stated. John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life in his, in his, through his name. That is God's intended purpose. And since that is the case, is it, is it any surprise? That verses from John's Gospel have been used to bring more people to faith in Christ and salvation than perhaps any other verses. Verses like John chapter 1, verse 12, John 3:16, John 3:36, John 14, 1 to 6, and many others. John's Gospel demonstrates its power to do what God intended it to do. And so to all scripture. All scripture has the ability and the power to accomplish its God given purposes, one of which is to bring Christians through the pathway of sanctification, one of which is to bring about righteous changes in a believer's life. But secondly, I want you to notice the scriptures are also profitable. They are profitable, it says, for four things profitable for doctrine. That is, they teach us what is right. It tells us the truth about God, how he is holy and just and righteous and loving and merciful and gracious. It tells us the truth about what God requires of us. It tells us the truth about Satan, the most wicked being in the universe. It tells us about sin, the most evil thing in the universe. Tells us the truth about man, he's fallen, he's depraved, he's corrupted by sin. Tells us the truth about the world, it is not our friend, it is an ally of Satan. Tells us the truth about heaven and hell, the truth about salvation, the truth about Jesus, the truth about the gospel, the truth about grace. Our hearts are deceitful, they're so easily deceived, therefore we need the scriptures constantly teaching us, reminding us, helping us to know what is true, what is right. Secondly, the scriptures are also profitable for reproof. They teach us what is wrong. What is wrong with us? James tells us that God's word is like a mirror. We look in it and we see ourselves. And the the wrong that we read in the scriptures is the wrong that we see in ourselves. The scriptures highlight our sinfulness. It exposes the idols of our hearts. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful. That word quick there means life-giving. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dis- dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You want to know what's going on in your heart? We, 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 it is so deceitful we ourselves don't even know everything's going on there. But the scripture tells us, reveals our own hearts to us. Thirdly, the scriptures are profitable for correction. They teach us how to make things right. It teaches about the need for confession of sin and of repentance and of reconciliation as a means of dealing with that. It teaches about forsaking sin. And sometimes restitution is required. We have to go back and pay back. We have to restore that which was stolen, for example. And sometimes forsaking sin might also require that there be some restriction when we're just not allowed to be doing certain things now because of our sin. Sometimes it requires radical amputation, as Jesus said. Sometimes we've got to make some really, really hard decisions so that we might forsake sin. Fourthly, Scriptures are profitable for instruction in righteousness, disciplined training in righteousness, how to keep things right. Now that we've, we've, we've made things right, how to keep things right. James 1 verse 25 tells us, That whoso looketh in the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man is blessed in his deed. James tells us how to keep things right. We've got to keep looking at the scriptures and stay there and stay there and stay there. We need to stay there so long that we don't forget. And we've got to continue in there so we don't forget. We've got to stay there long enough so that the things that we know very, very clearly now, we we actually start doing them. And we need to stay there until we are doing what it says. Meditation, continuation. The scriptures are powerful. They have the ability to bring about God's intended purpose and they're profitable in providing all that we need for life and godliness and they are God's primary tool for change in our lives. Number five. God's plan for practical daily change is put off, be renewed, put on. Put off, be renewed, Put on. We see it in several places in the scripture, that same pattern. Ephesians four twenty-two and 24. Listen to those expressions. That she put off conforming the, concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt with this deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That she put on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. Same pattern, Colossians 3, and verse 8. That she now put off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing you put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. Verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. The plan involves the following components. Firstly, put off. That's where we've got to start. Start putting off things. Use the Bible to identify sin. Okay? We're reading the Bible. It says something. It identifies something in our life. Okay? Let's use the Bible to identify sin. Secondly, acknowledge personal responsibility for that sin. James 1.14 says, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Okay, wasn't temptation's fault. Okay, it was my own lust that responded to that. Take responsibility for it. Thirdly, ask for forgiveness. John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God will do it, but we need to confess, we need to ask. Number four, be willing to change. Psalm 119 verse 10. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. You can see the dilemma he has. Yes, he wants to change and he's praying, God, please help me. Be willing to change. Number five, by God's grace, take steps to stop sinning. 1 Peter 4 verses 1 to 3. For as much then as Christ has suffered in the flesh, that's the gospel, Arm yourselves with the same mind, and Peter goes on. Think about what Jesus did, what Jesus had to suffer to deal with sin. Think deeply about what Christ did upon the cross, and arm ourselves with the same mind. This is what sin does. This is what is required. The thing that I'm about to do, tempted to do, this is what Jesus would do to forgive it. If nothing else had ever happened at this moment and I just do this sin, Jesus would have to die that death for this sin. Arm yourself with the same mind. Number six, organise life to make it hard to sin again. Jesus spoke about the radical amputation. You know, if, 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 if this is going to cause you to sin, well then you need to deal with it savagely. Romans 13, 14, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfil the lust thereof. I think a lot of the times we just keep falling into sin because we take no practical steps to do anything otherwise. Put off. Secondly, be renewed in your mind. Pursue a thorough biblical reorientation of your thinking by studying God's word, continually studying God's word. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What do you renew it with? The first 11 chapters that he just spoken about. The gospel. This is what renews our mind. This is what transforms us. This is what stops us from being conformed to the world. Okay? You, you get the gospel. Okay? It does something to you. That she may then prove, demonstrate, put into practice what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, meditating God's word day and night. Psalm 1, meditating God's word day and night. The Bible is all about Jesus. Who is better than the sin that tempts us. Jesus is better than the sin that tempts us. The Bible is a revelation of the glory of God. It's not a list of behaviours. It's a revelation of the glory of God. And when you see, start to see the glory of God in the scriptures, when you start to see the glory of God, it's revealed in the gospel. When you, you, when, when you begin to see how big it is, how huge it is, the impact of the gospel and all that God has done in Christ, when you begin to comprehend the, the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of God, things start to happen. And we come a little bit like Joseph. You know, it's like, how can I sin against God and do this wickedness? How, how can I when. God has done all this for me. Be renewed in your mind. Thirdly, put on. Put on. Replace sinful thoughts and words and actions with their godly opposites. Okay, that's what repentance is. I was doing this. Now, repentance means I confess that and I do the opposite, the godly opposite. For example, Romans 12 verse 21. Be not overcome with evil. How am I going to deal with that? Overcome evil with good. Okay? Don't give in to the evil, rather turn around and do good. Ephesians 4.25 Wherefore putting away lying. Okay, what's the godly opposite? Speak every man truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Let him that stole steal no more. Okay? What's the godly opposite? Rather let him labour with his hands, a thing which is good. That he may have to give to him that need. So rather than steal something, I'm going to actually give something away. That's repentance. That's what repentance looks like. Let no corrupt communication out of proceed out of your mouth. Okay? Instead of saying bad things on say good things. That which is good to the edifying, to the use of edifying that he may minister grace to the hearers. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And here's the godly opposite be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Put off, be renewed, put on. Every day, put off, be renewed, put on. Several times a day, put off, be renewed, put on. Number six. Sanctification is a joint divine human effort. While justification and glorification are completely the work of God, sanctification is a, a God-empowered joint effort. It's a grace-empowered joint effort. And helping, you know, understanding that help us, helps us to avoid the extremes of you know, just passivity you know, on one side. We just sit and do nothing waiting for God to zap us or legalistic self-reliance on the other extreme. Now, Scripture here is Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Okay? God works within you. Okay? He does that through the gospel. And if you contemplate the gospel, God will do a deep work in you. But then you've got to work that out. Okay? God works within, you work it out. God works within and he's going to give you the will and the desire and the ability to do that. It's a grace-induced desire. It's, it, grace gives us incredible energy to do that which is right. For example, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. Paul says, by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, but not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Where did Paul get all this energy to do everything that he did? Well, it was a response to the grace of God. He had a good grasp of the grace of God, and that gave him incredible energy. Number seven, sanctification is a corporate project requiring church life and input from others, other believers. A couple of verses here. Romans 15, verse 14. Paul says, For I myself am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Okay? This wasn't written to any one particular person in the church. This is to the whole church. He says you are able to admonish one another, and you're, that he commends them. That's, that's what we should be doing. Okay, it's not just you know, the person up the front who does it all. It's, it's the person that you sit next to. And I really do appreciate sitting next to someone in a meeting who after the meeting will turn to me and say, Pastor Matthews, you know, what were you reading in your Bible this week? And what were you praying about this week? What was the Lord teaching you this week? Speaking truth into my life and challenging me about that. That's, that's, that's what we all need to be doing. That's why God has put, this in this, put us in this community. Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Okay? Again, this is the obligation that we have to one another. If the person next to you, you, you know they've done something wrong, then you need to speak to them about that gently, meekly, humbly, considering yourself. I'm not going to judge them, going to help them. You say, well, that's um, you know, for those who are spiritual. It's not me, that's for those who are spiritual, not my responsibility. Um, uh, if you're not spiritual uh, then you should confess and repent and get to work okay it's not an excuse this is what god would require of all of us hebrews 10 25 let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a man of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching again this is why it's so important that we be together because we have the opportunity then to exhort one another and if we're not together we miss that exhortation god knows we need it it's a responsibility that we have one to another and this is the means whereby god continually works in us proverbs 12 verse 15 the way of the fool is right in his own eyes but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise and there is a council here that we can speak into one another's lives and that's a good and wise thing. True change doesn't necessarily take place in a counselling room but it takes place in a church community as a person is actively involved in both serving and being served by the body of Christ. So in summary and in conclusion God wants all of us to change and become more like Christ. He began this work in us by justifying us and will continue to sanctify us. The gospel is the key to change. As we understand our union with Christ, as we remember our new identity as children of God, as we find Christ to be our greatest delight, we are enabled, we are motivated to live for his glory. We're also responsible to exert effort in searching the scriptures, pursuing holiness and service and obedience. I think the way that uh, change takes place in our life could be illustrated by Peter's experience of walking on the water. Just as it was completely beyond Peter's natural ability to walk on the water. So it is beyond our natural ability to change for good. Whether it's changing from lust and materialism, substance abuse, and so on. Yet as Peter looked to Christ, he was enabled to walk on the water. And the same way, as we have our eyes, our vision filled with Christ, we will also be enabled to do things which would otherwise be impossible. And just as Peter began to sink when he took his eyes off Jesus, fearing the wind and the waves... So, we will only make progress in our spiritual growth as we keep our eyes fixed upon Him, as we abide in Him, John 15. If we focus on our own efforts, if we lose sight of Christ, if we lose sight of the gospel, then we, like Peter, will sink. But we also have responsibility. Jesus said to Peter, Come. Peter couldn't stay in the boat and expect Jesus to levitate him out of the boat. If Peter was to walk on the water, he had to respond to what the Lord said. He had to step out of the boat. And in the same way, we can't sit back in the boat and merely look at Jesus. We must hear his voice and heed his voice and respond. What he calls us to do, our response is, yes, Lord, I will do it. We're thinking, well, I can't do that in and of myself. Jesus calls us to do it by, by faith in Christ. We will we'll respond, trusting the Lord, following him, remembering, rem- remembering that we only succeed by his power. And then we're able to do what is humanly impossible. And because that is the case, he receives all the glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. Lord, in it you have provided everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, I do pray that our commitment to the scriptures would increase. Lord, I pray that we would open it daily and linger long over the scriptures, that we take it with us in our minds by by way of memorization and by way of meditation and continue in the scriptures and and stay there and linger there until we remember and we see clearly uh, what is there and we see clearer and clearer as we become more impressed with the the profundity of scripture and the wisdom of God and the love of God and, and the grace of God Lord, may these things come into sharper focus for us. Lord, I pray that you would expand our vision, give us eyes to see. Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law. And Lord, may we sense our hearts being drawn uh, towards you, drawn ever upward. And Lord, our posture, take the the posture of those who are just grateful worshippers, overwhelmed, Uh, with a sense of your greatness and having our hearts greatly impacted in that way. Uh, Lord, this is the kind of relationship with the scriptures that uh, we need to have. And I pray, Lord, that you might greatly help us with this. Uh, Lord, help us to put off those wrong things. Lord, help us to be renewed in our minds. Lord, help us to put on the right things, Uh, the positive godly opposites, of the things that we just do naturally. Lord, help us to stop and think, to do things differently. And Lord, whatever you call us to do, we know you give us the grace to do. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your commitment to us. Thank you for the good work that you've begun. Thank you that you've promised, you've pledged to continue to do it. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.